Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with Jeremy Sartori. It is a Brother, Brother podcast, and today we are hopping in the Wayback Machine, going all the way back to 2001 to 2003, uh, the dawn of the Strokes. Uh, it's hard to sort of replicate what the Strokes meant, or even sort of, dis- you know, sort of... Uh, um, retell what the Strokes meant in 2001 because it's such a different time. But Jerry, what was your first? Uh, what was your first dalliance with the Strokes? Where did you hear about them? Where did you listen to them? Yeah, so I mean, it is hard. It seems like um, you know we're talking about like 1977 or something, but we're not. And I think the yeah. Strokes were definitely trying to hit a 1977 vibe at the time. But uh, you know, this topic kind of came up as a you know. Some of our listeners may know I, I'm a fan of the Vinyl Me Please um, record club, and uh, I got Ramon Fire recently, the second album by The Strokes that came out in 03, and just realized how solid of an album that is, even though I'd kind of um, written it off. But to your que- to get back to your question, when um, so I read about The Strokes. This is the time of music magazines, um, you know, Melody Maker, uh, NME. Rolling Stone still being pretty relevant, and and then you know more underground things like Mojo and and um, God there was that sort alternative of press and yeah spin. alternative press what was that other Ma- not Maxim that was <laughs> also relevant at the time but uh, no but all those magazines had music sections yeah I mean, they details, did you're right Maxim yeah, they did details yeah details actually had pretty good music writing back then and so I even I, did a little I think. It was a, a mix of image, like these guys looked cooler than most of the people I'd been seeing around on, on bands and things like that, and I was living in Austin at the time, 20 years old in 2001, and um, and I think, you know, they sort of were described as something that I really wanted to hear, which was, um, let's just say, kind of Ramones, Velvet Underground, uh, New York Circa 77. Television, yeah. Yeah, and then that was something that I was like, whoa, that's what I'm looking for. And I think, too, one thing that, um, you know, has to be mentioned here is this is kind of coming off the height of guitars are dead, rock and roll is dead, um, you know, let's go all go and, and celebrate Orbital and Prodigy and, and Chemical yeah, Brothers. There was... and, um, which are all groups that we like too, <laughs> but you know, it sort of had uh, no, but it was there was this push, particularly by Spin, as I recall, there was this push to kind of say, okay, dawn of a new millennium, dawn of a new age, uh, nobody needs punk rock anymore. We've got you know, this uh, electronic music is, is going to take over the world, and here is your spokespeople, Prodigy, right? Yep, um, you are now a fire starter. And uh, you need to spike your hair and wear chain, um, you know, silver platinum chain necklaces. Where were but you? There was also a dis- Sorry, go ahead. No, there was also a disconnect, too, because, you know, you kept reading about Aphex Twin. And, and again, that was several years old at that point. But, you know, every top 10 of all time had an Aphex Twin reference in it. And you were like, I don't, I don't know. I've never really listened to Aphex Twin. Right. Um, where do I find this shit? And, um, you know, so in the in the grand declaration that rock and roll was dead, a new sort of rock and roll uh, scene basically era dawned, and it was it was really good. Um, yeah, I was I was thirty years old. Um, I had just moved from New York to Boston. I was working for dot com, and mm-hmm. there was a Newbury Comics down the street from our office, which of course was a converted. Uh, shoe factory that had like beanbag chairs and foosball tables and all that shit. Um, <laughs> it was definitely an you know a time. It was uh, you know it was the dot com bubble, and it was a weird moment when everybody had a ton of money and everybody had a ton of money on paper and not much in the bank. And there the also was kind of a re and I'm not maybe not some of the cities that have always been established, but there seemed to be kind of a, a move of young people into urban areas again, too. Am I wrong there? In the early no, 2000s? there was... When you think about the 80s and 90s, it was all about regional scenes. And part yep. of that, I think, you know, we've discussed before, you know, people got priced out of New York. People got priced out of, of L.A. And there wasn't a whole lot of music emanating from there. I mean, I lived in, in New York uh, for the bulk of the 90s I had come from college in Amherst Massachusetts and Amherst Massachusetts had produced 
multiple great bands back then. And not only that, but the head of Matador, you know, I think was a UMass guy. And there was a, you know, so you had Dinosaur, I was coming from Dinosaur and the Pixies playing um, small clubs in college, and Buffalo Tom for that matter, uh, to going to New York. And really there was no local music scene in New York City at that point. Yeah, there really wasn't. I was going to say you sort People of People have a hard time believing that. Yeah, you had the, um, you know, godfathers of sort of uh, post-punk in, in America and indie rock, Sonic Youth, who kind of were sort of figureheads who also had a place in Northampton, speaking of... Even, I mean, even they moved to Northampton. Yeah, I was going to say. And, um, and then you really kind of, it was, uh, you know, Brooklyn was not a thing. There was um, obviously young things percolating and, and people starting to kind of Lower East Side and, and Alphabet City world and things starting to percolate for sure. Hip hop uh, ruled the day in, in New York as it always has. And you, know who the, still... you, know, you know who the New York music scene when I lived there was? And people, Christian particularly has a hard time believing this, but the New York music scene when I lived in New York was uh, Jeff Buckley, Lisa Loeb, um, it's all very singer songwritery, uh, spin doctors kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, they were a New York band as well. Um, they, yeah, I mean, it, the Wetlands was big. I mean, there was a lot of jam band stuff going on at that point. But it was, you know, there were then you'd get the odd uh, Mooney Suzuki or, um, you know, some of these other bands that that had more attitude than than skill or you know, really didn't carry that much interest. They just happened to be local and sort of audacious. And so it was, you know, the world was waiting on another, a boom, and it boom they got. I mean, it was kind of, it was kind of crazy. But getting back to where I was, I went to the Newbury Comics in Newton Highlands and and bought uh, the EP, the Modern Age EP, in, I think, January of 2001, and then just kept, this was how little, it, we had the internet and how little information was flowing. I was literally, there was a, I, the last time I remember asking a record store clerk if a record had come out yet. Right. I was going to say, very similar experience. I was in Austin and I, Waterloo Records, the classic record store down there on Lamar, um, you know, I walked in, I was kind of got into a retro vinyl thing, which is, is obviously still carried on <laughs> as I'm talking about mm-hmm. receiving Room on Fire. And they had the seven inch. I couldn't get it on CD. That that modern age EP, and it had last night and um, modern age. You know, as a side A and, and last night as side B. And it was one of those and rare barely experiences. Legal. Yep, and it was one of those experiences that you talk a lot about in first hearing the Smiths, where I'd read about a band. I had seen pictures of a band that looked way cooler than I looked um, at the time, and I'd also. Um, imagined what they sound like and putting that record on for the first time it all kind of came together you know they sounded exactly what i wanted them to sound like which was funny television lou reed and you know um the ramones all mixed into one it's funny you mentioned the the looks though because i did not know what they looked like and so when i heard it and when i heard julian casablanca's vocals for the first time i was like oh this guy must be like 35 Right. Yeah. Uh, he sounded really confident. He wrote well. And it was like this, you know, it was so retro sounding that I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around the kid, that being a young kid. Then again, you look at the world he grew up in and you do have a, a very, you know, I mean, that set uh, is a very jaded, that New York City via Swiss boarding school and your dad owns the largest modeling agency in the world. You, you, by the time you're 21, you are 44. Right. And I think, too, interestingly, and you know, I'm sure this happens today in different ways, but that sort of what you just mentioned, that backstory came out at the same time. I mean, this is all happening pre this album even being dropped. You know, so right. this these singles have come out just to give everyone kind of a, a an idea you know, like a lot of great American indie rock of the late 90s and early 2000s, England latches on right away, or London, you know, it becomes kind of a sensation without having an album. I think the album did drop there initially first. And you're For getting the record, Matt- I don't think anyone in the band has American parents. 
Right, right, and you know you're you're getting a band that um, is kind of written up in every every magazine as the next thing and the rebirth of rock and roll, a kind of a, a rebirth of New York City, to be honest too, and um, you know, and they're very, uh, you know, these guys had an opportunity to to Wins Point. These are kids that are are kind of affluent kids, are very affluent kids, who had the opportunity to kind of study the coolness of a lost era, you know, of a, of a sound that, you know, of their influences, you know, these guys got to kind of read about television and, and look at the way people dressed with skinny ties and, and, you know, pack some, a Marlboro red hanging out of your mouth and, um, you know, shit yeah, like that. This was... And at the same time, you, you immediately got backlash before anyone had heard the record, which is interesting, you know? Yeah, it was, well, there's a weird, uh, the modern age EP came out in January, 2021 I mean, sorry, 20, uh, 2001. The album didn't come out until... The album wasn't scheduled to come out until August. Yeah, I was going to say and summer, then got pushed, I feel like. And then they pushed it to September, and then September 11th happened, and they pushed it another month to October uh, so that they could take the song New York City Cops off and also get rid of the objectionable, so to speak, album art, which was, uh, you know, Leather sort of the... Yeah, but I mean, it was the, the funny thing was that it was the actual depiction that uh, Spinal Tap makes a joke about in uh, in this is Spinal Tap. Right. I smell the glove. It's a nude woman with a leather glove. Um, that having been said, so there was all, there was all sorts of wrangling and consternation around the song New York City Cops. That actually was part of what started the backlash, Jerry. I think um, you know this this sort of snotty the snotty rich kid thing was was sort of part of. Uh, was less of of the uh, narrative until New York City cops came out, and then it was like, oh, you know, snotty rich kids bitching about the cops who are the real heroes now because nine eleven happened in the interim, and of course there was, uh, you know, there was no room for criticism of police activity following nine eleven. Yeah, that was definitely it, and I do think there was a percentage of it too, though that was. Like any um, you know art form or any kind of uh, you know scene, and again, this is this is when you mentioned kind of the regional, you know, aspects Nature of the scene things, before yeah. this. Yeah, um, there was jealousy. I mean, I think bands looked at the Strokes as sounding pretty great, um, looking cool, and having the ability to do that without the sort of um, road worn, you know. Uh, you know, the, 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 I guess the paths traveled by others, you know what I mean? I think that they sort yeah, of, they, did, they didn't earn, you had bands team. like, you know, Brainiac or, you know, uh, Bedhead or bands that it was kind of that, that prime indie nineties time where a lot of bands were, were very underground and there was a lot of backlash against being in Rolling Stone magazine or being, you know, a sellout per se. Well, the whole, the whole major label wars had been fought during the 90s. Uh, a lot of people, um, you know, hurt themselves by, um, you know, valuing authenticity over personal success and, you know, staying on a label that, that couldn't keep up with production or went out of business or, you know, the amount of lawsuits that had followed, you know, the, the great SST roster of, of the 80s and and um, you know that that whole debacle. Uh, you you hear all these stories now of bands that you know had real difficulties getting their music to people. And and here you have the dawn of the internet. You've got a band that is going to be huge before really they even put out a record. And you know it turns out they're all all their parents are are you know wealthy. Uh, variations on the same type of person from New York City. I mean, Julian Casablancas met the you know other guys in the Strokes at the Dwight School on the Upper West Side. The only one who didn't go there was Albert Hammond, Who's and he and Casablancas right? met. They they met at Swiss boarding school, so right. it wasn't exactly uh, you know. <laughs> they they um, got a care package on the same day from their <laughs> nanny. <Yeah. laughs> they dressed like a street gang. They didn't uh, they didn't really have the actual. Well, and I also know, you know, and you were sort of in, a, in an older bracket in, in terms of like just, you know, professional. I was sort of running around bars and clubs in my 20, early 20s. I did get a sense, too, and we can talk about the album actually dropping. I loved it. Um, I think yeah. you did, too. It was sort of what I needed, what I wanted a band to sound like. Um, there was a little bit of hesitation, like they were sort of pre-constructed in a way. Um, 
but it was, you know, in general, just a great, it's a great record start to finish. But I did get pushback within friends of my scene that were kind of like, yeah, that's it. You know, is this it really? Like there was so much hype. I think that there was a lot of hype. It was sort of a uneventful experience for some. Yeah. I had seen them multiple times before the, between the time the EP came out and the album came out and I thought they were great. Um, and I was looking forward to the album, but I even, I think I was a little bit, I don't think I could have been satisfied with, with the album. I ultimately am. I think it's a great album. But the first time I spun it, um, you know, I, I, it, it would have had to have, you know, it would have had to turn the insides of my ears to solid gold if it were, you know, if it lived up the expectation that I, the unbelievably high expectation that I had. And ultimately, I wore into it and I thought it was a great record and listened to it endlessly. And that's but, another thing um, that just doesn't happen anymore because you had such limited access to records because there was still information. That, yeah, well, there was that old guard of, you know, um, kind of the baby boomer critic guard or, or you know, post baby boomer oh, yeah. critic guard that you know was looking for the next uh, blood on the tracks always or, or you know, um, <laughs> whatever it was. And and you know, I think when something big came out, it had to be like there was a need for it to be important to them you know mm-hmm. and I think nowadays you just have a ton of music and a lot of access and critics are, are far less uh, influential in that sense um, but well, you, have the, the conf- you have the confluence of two sets of critics basically <laughs> you have the the hard copy critics um, you know Rolling Stone Spin all these guys that still are around you know the Rob Sheffields and yep. David Wilds and Anthony DeCurtis's and people like that then on the ascent was Pitchfork and um, you know all these other uh, the online... fan as critic, yeah, and it sort of had taken the place of the zine back, you know, from the Ben is Dead um, kind of era. Nice but uh, rock and roll, yep. Yeah, so it was an interesting. It was an interesting time in that regard. And then again, there was the the, the great fear that every critic lived with, what that they might give the uh, five star. A perfect ten review to a teenage fan club record and never be able to never live to forget it. Um, well <laughs> or, into or, or the two thousand twenty. Put teenage fan club above slanted and enchanted and still uh, mm-hmm. you know, have to pay for that. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and I think too, you know, like I said, it was kind of the dawn of an era, and I think you know, rightfully so. There are probably more interesting bands that popped into this early New York. You know, the Great Book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is actually a Stroke song off the second album. Um, you know, kind of details the scene that was bubbling up in the Lower East Side and eventually moved over to Brooklyn. Um, we can mm-hmm. both, you know, uh, and hung out claim to have been in, in, you know, the coolest parts of Brooklyn at the time where there was one bar and a bunch of shitty lofts and nothing, yeah. nothing else to really do. <laughs> but yeah, it was a, it was a good scene. I mean, you kind of, uh, or a good moment, you know, you from New York, actually you got these guys, Interpol's first record, um, the yeah, yeah, yeahs were part of it. TV on the radio. Um, and then, yeah, TV on the radio. F- further afield, you got the White Stripes hitting at the same time. Detroit, who, you yeah. know, sort of. And, well, there uh, was a, a years later. there was a rock and roll revolution with the Strokes in a way that was global. I mean, you had the Hives, the White Stripes, yep. um, Libertines, you know, all. And I and I will, you know, I think it's safe to say the Strokes really were the first. They may not have been the first band playing in any of those scenes i don't know no, but they were the they were the kings of it they were yeah and i think they were the one the killers you know came out of that world too and they were really kind of the ones that that made it okay again it was you know like the great lcd line and um losing my edge you know we sold our, our guitars for turntables and then sold our turntables back for guitars um you know and it was definitely that type of thing um two year i mean really less than two years later they come out with room on fire which is their second album um, to very, you know, again, hyped, and I think that album did, did quite well, but it, it definitely landed with a bit of more of a dud, um, or, you know, let's just say uh, it was very easy to write off as, okay, this is Strokes 2, or this, uh, is it this it too? Um, and, you know, I think we'll go into the albums a little bit more in the next down, segment, but, down, yeah. Go but ahead. down to the fact that they, you know, um, you're coming off of, uh, you know, Kid A, and, you know, this Radiohead pulling this sort of major, um, you know, artistic right turn, 
you know, with Nigel Godrich, uh, the stroke sign on t- with Nigel, you know, with Nigel Godrich as producer. And you're like, oh, shit, this is going to be even crazier. The strokes are going to have, you know, some are going to go for their, um, you know, creative zenith and, and figure out, you know, uh, they're going to, it's just going to be otherworldly. And they, about, you know, a couple weeks into those sessions, they go back to Gordon Raphael, uh, their original producer from Is This It, and basically record, um, you know, what you, what you mentioned before is kind of part two of, the, of their debut album. Yeah, I mean it's um it's a record that I really think is more interesting going back to and we'll talk about that again in, in the next segment here but I do remember so sort of that feeling that uh you talked about with is this it where it, you know it had to have been kind of you know lined your eardrums with with gold and I think a lot of people that I was so excited for the first record and, and played that those singles to everyone I could possibly you know um play them for and and love that album. I felt very much that way with Room on Fire. Like very excited, uh, interesting. Don't know why I was expecting, you know, something completely a revolution. To blow my, yeah, yeah, a revolution because these guys were pretty much just a very good band, you know, good rock band, yeah. and and they all can play, which was unique and and things like that. But it was um, it was one of those things that like it sort of fell flat for me, and and I've you know recently kind of gone back to and and realize why I, I like it actually a little better sometimes start to finish. Um, before we jump into that segment, I was just going to read a couple of just brief kind of stints from Rolling Stone at the time. Um, both albums got four stars, by the way. I mean, both albums were, were fairly critically um, acclaimed. But, you know, as we said, you know, I think fans were a little disappointed in the second. But, you know, just the first paragraph for Is This It, this this is the stuff of which, and this is a, uh, I know Joe Levy from Rolling Stone. I think Frick did the second one. Um, This is the stuff which legends are made, uh, recorded in a sub-basement studio off Avenue A in Manhattan where the air was blue with cigarette smoke and three pictures from a Victoria's Secret catalog were taped to a cabinet for something like inspiration. The Strokes debut album is pure New York rock and roll. All gray pavement, aggression wrapped in black leather cool. Less than a year ago, the Strokes were handing out gig flyers to uninterested fans at Weezer shows. Now that they're subject of British magazine covers, schoolgirl crushes, and already disgruntled in crowd jealousy. I mean, you know, that kind of really sums up. Sorry, go ahead. Go Joe. No, that was good. Yeah, it is good. Uh, And nailed it. I think, I think the fun, you know, another funny thing about uh, the era, and we can, we can take a break right after this, but is there another band upon first hearing uh, our first learning about them, Jared, that felt more poised for a behind-the-music profile than The Strokes. Oh, totally. I mean, it was yeah, it was already <laughs> written. I think they had it on their second single. You could have done it. I'm just going to throw The Room on Fire, which is the acclaimed uh, critic David Frick, who's been around forever. You know, and this is, again, a four-star review from Rolling Stone at the time. Change is good. It can be important, even historic. It's not always necessary. One of the best things about Room on Fire, The Strokes' second album, is that in most of the ways that matter, it's exactly like the first. Nick Valencia's and Albert Hammer Jr.'s dirty treble guitar cut and thrust over the hard rubber bounce of bassist Nikolai... How do you say his last name? Fritcher. Fritcher, yeah. And drummer Fabrizio Moretti. Singer-songwriter Casablancas delivers his put-up-or-fuck-off sh- or telegrams and burst <laughs> corrosive draw, and producer Gordon Raphael wraps up the whole package with airtight... Austerity on first impact room on fire is the 2001s. Is this it as the Ramones second album? Leave home, leave home was to their knuckle sandwich debut, a perfect twin, which again is is pretty apt. And I would say in the Ramones case, the first four albums are are (laughs) pretty much the same album, and I was all for it. so there you go, and and I think the consensus is that Rocket to Rush is the best one, and that I believe is is number four. Yep, and I uh, and I also think for some reason we punished started to punish people for putting out consistently Consistent. good stuff. Um, but let's take a break, and uh, Damien, let's throw on Modern Age, and we'll come back.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod. It's Win and I today, and we are uh, reminiscing um, about the early 2000s and our entry, our gate, gateway drug to the rebirth of rock and roll, cool, in New York and, and elsewhere by the Strokes. Um, we're talking about Room on Fire and Is This It, and uh, two albums that kind of, you know, I think really put the Strokes on the map but also put, um, you know, kind of a scene in place and a uh, time period, certainly uh, drum up a time period for us. Uh, when you were in Boston, but somehow managed to see the strokes, like I believe three or four times within this, this kind of brief period. I never yeah. got to see them, actually. Go for it. Uh, what were they like live? They were, you know, I think they were fairly good uh, replication of their record. They, you know, there's... Um, it's sort of, you know, mistake-free rock and roll. Um, it's not, you know, it's funny. They, they have a jagged, kind of a jagged sound, and it sounds kind of haphazard, but there's absolutely nothing that's haphazard about that. Even, you know, their solos are brief. Everything about the songs are brief and concise and compressed, and, I, and that's the way I remember them live. They were a single breathing organism when they played live. Um, I've really seen more tight exciting band, bands. Right? Yeah, I've seen more theatrical bands, but this band is super tight. And they remind me a lot of the Ramones in that way. You know, you go see a Ramones show and you know people think of the Ramones as being like slapdash and funny, but they were they were a fucking unit, you know, and it it was never um, you know, to the point where it all sounded like one instrument essentially, even the vocals. But, uh, you know, so I saw them once at a small club here in Boston or in Cambridge called TT the Bears. And then uh, my friend Chris Jennings uh, got tickets. We went to see them at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island. And then again with Chris, I saw them the night before New Year's. So December 30th, 2001, they did this uh, really fun comp, you know, sort of... uh, um, concept concert uh apparently you know the apollo used to have these soul reviews and basically you'd have two band setups on either side of the stage and as one walked off the other would walk on so the strokes did this with um what i later came to find out were were sort of their musical idols which was guided by voices um and david cross uh, then of mr show uh emceed the thing and it was pretty uh to be honest with you it was it you know, it was a great night. I had a blast. I've now seen multiple pieces on this uh, where David Cross claims, uh, or and rightly so, he was certainly remembers it better than I do, um, to have gotten a terrible reaction. I was laughing my ass off at the David Cross set, so um, at least one person there was was thought he was on fire. Um, it was just post nine eleven. Obviously, it was. Uh, the 30th of December, 2001, and he was making a lot of jokes about how jingoistic America had gotten post 9-11, so there was a lot of too soon involved. But um, also, as soon as the bands came on, they played, I believe, you know, they must have switched sides like six times, Um, but they managed to get, I mean, obviously the entire Strokes catalog out of it. Yeah, I was going to say, Strokes had one album, and Guided by Voices already had 200 <laughs> right. When they played about, I think they played forty some odd songs. Um, but it, they, you know, they knew what they did best, and they played the bulk of Alien Lanes and and B Thousand. But to me, to my recollection, other than uh, drinking too much, what I think was uh, off brand uh, shoe polish uh, and an RC cola, um, I ordered <laughs> drinks, and, and Chris and I were both uh, drinking a, a lot and. Uh, Neither one of us could identify what the cocktails were that we bought at the Apollo. They were pretty, uh, pretty grisly. Somebody was definitely pouring out of, out of uh, Jack Daniels or you know like uh, moonshine out of Jack Daniels bottles. But it, it, we wound up um, absolutely torched. It's and John Daniels, not Jack Daniels. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, but yeah, those are the two things I remember: was how great the show was and how bad my hangover was the next day. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually have read post articles or maybe they were somewhat around the time of, of Casablancas and, and some of the Strokes guys, maybe Albert Hammer Jr. talking about Guided by Voices, actually, you know, that everybody thought that television 
and you know VU and, and Ramones and things like that were their influences. They're like, hell no, like Gotta Be Voices was the band that we were trying to be, which is really yeah, funny it, to think about it. It is really funny, and and TBV, you know, I mean, it was a great foil for those guys because you know, uh, Strokes were kind of all fashion and attitude, and GBV is all Miller Lite and and uh, you know, college reverence for. <laughs> Exactly. It was, it was, it was a great, I had a great time. Now I can't, I, I think the, the, the New Year's Eve show, cause they played two nights with the same, um, you know, the same setup. And I think the New Year's Eve show might've got gone off the rails a little bit. And so they don't have fond memories of it, but the 30th show, which was, you know, in effect, I guess the dress rehearsal was pretty fucking great. Nice. Well, um, let's, uh, let's give our cases for each album. And, uh, you know, sometimes we do a sort of versus uh, Room on Fire, you know, Room on Fire versus Is This It. I don't know that that's fair in this case because I think we both like these albums. Um, in the past, we've done, you know, Joy Division versus New Order or uh, yeah, Smashing Pumpkins versus Christian Chains Addiction. To, yeah. to dig in and be combative. But, yeah, uh, you know, but, to be um, honest with you, I do, I do like Is This It better than Yeah, so uh, let's hear why. Um, I think I honestly, um, you know, it, it is objective and it's subjective. I, uh, I was so happy, as you mentioned, to have this band arrive in my life in that, in that period. I mean, think about what was really popular back then. We're, we're, you know, looking at the tail end of like that. Um, I hadn't really re- gone back and recalled how much that sort of light FM rock was dominating the charts. Oh, yeah. you know, counting, I mean, I think I heard a Toad Sprocket song the other day, and I just wanted to, like, drive off the road. Yeah, it was like Goo Goo Dolls and, and Toad the Wet Sprocket and, uh, you know, the uh, Bob Dylan, you know, Jacob Dylan's band, the Wallflowers, and, you know, all that stuff, kind of train. And so for these guys to sort of land on planet Earth, you know, fully formed, as I always say, uh, was a was a blessing, and I was really receptive to it. I I think when Room on Fire came out, I don't think I ever really listened to it in full. I do remember twelve fifty one being thinking at the time that it was the best Stroke song they would ever write, and I still would hold to that. But <clears throat> all in all, having is this it drop, um, you know, was such a revelation. I was so thrilled with it, and every song on it's a banger. Uh, it really is a great album. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think both of these albums, I mean, they really are kind of part, you know, A plus, A minus type thing. If if you want to go there and you can flip either one, it's sort of uh, a couple. But you think Room on Fire is better, so. Yeah, well, that's what I'm going to say, and I was going to say, but my A plus is Room on Fire. And here's my reasoning behind it. It, it might be a little bit of recency bias, but... Um, I've listened to Is This It quite a bit, and I've probably listened to it more than Room on Fire just in my lifetime. My favorite songs on Is This It are that title track, I think, is a great song. It's it's kind of off-kilter. I really like their off-kilter stuff. So I like, like, Hard to Explain. I like mm-hmm. uh, When It Started. I like, you know, the sort of um, almost like where they have their guitars almost sounding like synths, you know? And they have kind of a more new wave new wave kind of sound and you know they go more cars than ramones exactly i love last night i love you know songs like that but they they can get old pretty quickly and and they have kind of a formula i mean it's a great song don't get me wrong um you know someday is is a a favorite from is is it where i what i like about room on fire is to me it just sounds more um modern in a weird way Yeah. (laughs) yeah and so like you know with the opening track whatever happened to your point 1251 um, under control, um, the end has no end. All those songs to me have that kind of new wave, like ang- you know, sort of slightly mathy sound um, that I really is my is the thing I really like about the Strokes. I think it's where the band really shines. I think Casablancas is is you know a great vehicle, and apparently actually one of the main writers of all of it. I mean, I think he's. I think he wrote all the songs. Yeah, yeah. what I've read, and also you know is, is a pretty you know, can play a keyboard and guitar, but um, comes with the sort of music laid out too. And the band just kind of filled in the pieces. But um, yeah, I just, I found those songs to be today more to my kind of leaning. And, and I think 
Room on Fire unfairly gets kind of, um, and, and you know, I think it's getting a bit of a resurgence, uh, you know, last couple of years, maybe just this year. But it, it sort of gets unfairly placed as pretenders too, you know, where it's like good but not as good. And I, I'm going to argue mm. that I think it's a better album start to finish. I think that uh, well, it's a better album than Pretenders too. But again, yeah. Pretenders too had those two great singles, and I, I kind of felt I feel like that's most people's. Well, that's what I feel like. Yeah, exactly. I think that people dismiss it because it's like, oh, that's they had great singles, but the album isn't good. And I. Encourage yourself and others to go back and actually just put it on start to finish. After is this it? And you'll you'll uh, not only be have your full of the strokes for the for the next few months. But I would also, I would actually I would draw ahead. the parallel more to uh, Candy O and the Cars first album. Um, yeah, which in a you know I I can because I think they came out when I was nine and ten. Um, you know, I liked Candio just as much as the Cars. It, it never get the critical lauding that the Cars' first album gets. But to me, Candio and the Cars are are of a piece, much like Room on Fire and and Is This It are. Yeah, they came out quickly, uh, which was smart back then. I also think too that it's just you know, like it said, it's a, it's a consistency thing. Like the Strokes are really good at one, you know one thing being the strokes and uh and i don't know why we punished them for that at the time mm-hmm. now mind you their third album was not that good it had a couple good songs but not not that great but that happened no but too. that's I what mean, happened when they tried to branch out yeah exactly I- exactly they tried to kind of make the vocals cleaner they tried to have a bigger sound you t- you, and you, you know you people told us to grow as artists this is what happened when we grew as artists yeah we, were you, no longer we beat them up we were no longer relevant yeah <laughs> um and so I, you know, I just think as an album, though it's it's a it's kind of a, a more rocking, more relevant record than is this it is probably more important to me just because I needed it. Like you said, it was a time where I just kind of I needed something, um, and and they filled that void. And they also, it's weird. Like I'm, you know, for me, I always, and I think you too, to some degree, we always liked sort of outside the mainstream music which was not necessarily popular with my peer group and things like that. Um, you know, it's hard to kind of get people into some of that music and you kind of needed a band to do what the strokes did, which was to take all the elements of the shit that I liked and put it in one place and, and make it universal really, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody has that out, had that album at that time. Is this, yeah. it was, well, was I mean, you, you, it's everybody's a, it's a, CD tree. It's once a, once a decade it happens. I mean, London yep. calling, Serve that purpose. Never mind. Serve that purpose. Yankee and Hotel Foxtrot. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. like all yeah, Radiohead. It's I mean, there's yeah, there's one that like kind of hits that that mark. But yeah, I, I think um, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. And then they did have their like inevitable um, behind the music episodic bullshit where they all married supermodels and developed heroin habits and and. Uh, then, yeah, I think the I MGMT "Time to Pretend" song could probably, you know, have been their uh, their theme. Yeah, it was, but you know, um, and in fact, I'm probably wrong on half of those. Uh, but it is it is kind of funny. There was, you know, they were um, they got into purse it, fights it, with Ryan Adams. They got into <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, that's the funny thing is that it, you know, I would I would actually draw a parallel. The weird parallel I would draw, um, which nobody would believe at this point, but was the Stray Cats in like 1980, 81. Hmm. Um, The Stray Cats uh, became huge in England and started off this sort of, you know, uh, rockabilly revival um, that was pretty short-lived, but every single guy in the Stray Cats was like dating some supermodel or actress, and they were regarded as like the coolest thing in the world. And it it was really funny because it just you know it, nobody would look back uh, forty years and and think that they were you know strokes level cool, but they were. Yeah, you had. Um Fab dating uh, Drew Barrymore at the time. I mean, there was a bunch of uh, yeah, a bunch. Of, yeah, they became huge and and celebrities. And then the the and sort of. I mean, Nick Valencia is married to Amanda Decadene, who was you know one of the biggest sort of you know socialite it girls in in London. Um, you know, it, it it was all very yeah. They were they were huge. They were pinups. They were Duran Duran. Yeah, definitely. And what is what, what would you say the legacy of the Strokes is today? It's twenty twenty one. We're we're uh, you know. 
I think people think have fond memories. You know, it's not like they're, uh, and I think they grow much like Duran Duran. They grow in estimation. You know, people talk about Duran Duran now as if. Uh, well, I don't think people were ever as disparaging of the Strokes as they were of Duran Duran. Duran Duran had like a a real reputation as uh, you know. I mean, they would have been more comparable to like In Sync if you ask somebody in the '80s, but have since in the you know in the 30, 40 years we've had to to gestate uh, to uh, digest uh, Duran Duran, they have become cool and and you know a a sort of historical juggernaut. Um, in the world of, you know, presenting music as visuals and blah, blah, blah. They, they are now taken very seriously. I think the Strokes similarly are, are taken very seriously um, and are lauded as being a great band. I don't think anyone honestly cares if they ever put out another album, though. No, I agree. And uh, I think, too, I can't, and maybe this is over over played in my mind, but I can't, um, you know, having grown up a lot of my life outside of New York City and, and actually lived there on and off um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, I can't say enough for what they did to bring Cool back to that city and to have bands from all over the country start to move there. I, I don't know that it was the necessarily right. the, only the Strokes, or, but they definitely, I feel like, were kind of a um, beachhead, you know, um, and you know no but but the 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 10 years that followed uh you were required to move to Brooklyn to start up That's what I mean. Yeah, it was that sort of it was pre I mean in the strokes you probably never never ever lived in Brooklyn but it was that kind of they were the first wave and then the second wave and the third wave it was almost like there was really no other music scene going on. I mean, even bands like The National, who are kind of lauded as that, that scene now, are from Cincinnati. Or, you know, they're from Ohio. You know, they, those guys. And it had yeah. four albums out prior to yeah. Alligator, prior to moving to Brooklyn. Hold Steady's from yeah, Minneapolis. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, everybody's from somewhere yep. else. Parquet Courts is from yep. Texas. And every, you know, every, all these bands, you know, you moved... It was a rite of passage like it was in the 60s yeah, so, to move Yeah, to or a Laurel Canyon in L.A. or something. You know, it was like, um, yeah. yeah, and I, I just think that that is something that is, to me, a big part of their legacy. Um, again, I'll, I'll say, like, there are bands at that time like that I think are more interesting, TV on the radio, even even some of the White Stripe stuff, things like that. But um, but I think, yeah, I think these these guys, I think you're right. These two albums are, are, are vitally important. They sound great. They never really have, have aged out are kind of ageless and um and it was a fun time you're always delighted to hear them in a restaurant oh definitely yeah you don't get sick of it and they're great they're great start to finish they're albums that you can put on and and you know in a weird way they're they're sort of uh their mass appeal is on on you know unmistakable like there's not really anybody that's gonna be like what the hell is this you know well, I'm going to introduce one thought that, you know, probably derails everything that we've just <laughs> talked about. But, you know, it might as well be one track. Yeah, it's totally true. And, you know, it, you're you're absolutely right. It's uh, It derails everything, but it also, uh, it's, it's one goddamn record. good track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I used to say that about uh, ACDC and the Ramones, and I would say the same thing of the Strokes. They have one, um, you know... They have one song, but it's a great it song. And I can play it over and over again. All right. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's close this out with 1251, and then we'll, we'll end this episode like we always do. Brother, brother podcast. Uh, we are going to end this episode the way we end every episode with the uh, trick question. Jeremy, what are you listening to? Oh my god, it's not a trick for me today. I, uh, you know, as I mentioned 
start this episode. I've been listening to fucking Strokes. That's why we're talking about them. I, um, I just got Room on Fire on beautiful uh, colored vinyl. And, um, you know, being stuck at home, I've, I've been playing that album start to finish, and it's great. And so, uh, and which brought me back into the, to the first album as well, is this it? And, uh, you know, like Wynn said, last closing out the last segment there, it is one great song, and uh, I'm happy to kind of be revisiting it. Um, in addition to that, you know, obviously watch the Super Bowl, things like that, but I've had a couple insomnia nights, and... Uh, I think you and I are both notorious for finding obscure, shitty music documentaries on Amazon. Yeah. Um, and Jay's Longhorn popped up, which is the iconic, uh, you know, sort of scene stir club from the late seventies, early eighties in Minneapolis. Um, you know, and, uh, the only reason I have any interest in Jay's Longhorn at all, or even know what the fuck it is, is I'm, you know, a massive replacements fan and, and, you know, they talk about it a lot or who's going do. Trouble boys. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, really I'm going to highly, highly suggest that nobody watch this documentary unless they're up really, really late, maybe stoned, maybe drunk and just, um, obsessed with, with, uh, those bands I, I just mentioned or have read trouble boys. But there was a couple of things that stood out. One, it's just kind of interesting to see scenes pop up in, in smaller markets and in, in Midwest cities, um, having grown up on the, in the East Coast. And um, it's it was just kind of unique. I think there's one benefit to that, and, and it's uh, a very unabashed, um, you know, uh, I guess, influence of, of, like, you know, things like English New Wave and things like that. I mean, the bands really sounded great back then, the suburbs and... Uh, Suicide Commandos and, and bands that you know really influenced some bands that I love and were a lot different than I was expecting. I, those are not bands that aren't are for, I'm very familiar with. I know of them really via my love of Husker Du and, and the Replacements and sort of the, the mid early '80s rock that came out of Minneapolis. But um, but you know these are bands that sounded way more like um, oh gosh you know like OMD or, or you know kind of Flock of Seagulls than they did than I was ever expecting them those, those are probably a little extreme on on their sound but the cars you know they, they very much were were very car centric and uh and and pretty damn good and just it's funny to watch that scene and just how dressed up everybody was and, and it just looked like a fun yeah, place yeah but everybody wanted to be the basically everybody wanted to be the jam yeah exactly yeah lots of mod and, and everybody had kind of their own thing going and it, it was good so you see how a lot of that was very influential and and just a time where you had one place to go you know the freaks and the geeks mm-hmm. and the music fans had one place to go so um when what have you been uh, listening to i've been watching some uh screeners but before i get to i did watch a another sort of off-brand music doc on Amazon about ACDC. And I, I may be the last person that was, I, I pride myself on, on having a lot of very obscure knowledge. And, and me, this may be one of those ones that everybody else in the world knows, but I didn't know. I did not know Bon Scott played the bagpipes on uh, Long Way to the Top. I didn't know that either. I just knew that there was bagpipes, and that makes the song fucking yeah, awesome. Yeah, I just assumed it was, you know, they're Scottish. They've yeah. got a bagpipe player. But Bon Scott himself was a bagpipe player and plays the bagpipe solo, which is actually pretty good. I hate bagpipes. Oh, it's great. But, yeah. I, um, I, don't, it's actually, I don't care about them, but I love them in that song. Yeah, I just, I've seen enough... Uh, funerals in Boston to, uh, to not want the bagpipes. Or, um, anyway, uh, the other one I liked, um, I think I might have mentioned, I like Promising Young Woman with Carrie Mulligan. Um, I think it's you know flawed, but still one of the better things I've seen. And then I wanted to bitch about, uh, I saw, I sat through Pieces of a Woman, which has the bones of a good movie um, and is completely... Uh, ruined by the presence of Shia LaBeouf, yeah. who I believe is in a different movie altogether than the one that uh, they put him uh, his character in this one. It, it makes no sense, and I've anybody else who's seen it, including our cousin Marina, I've had lengthy discussions about, um, you know, some like I don't. It's one of those movies that you watch and and you're just so confounded by the choices uh, or some of the choices that you're like. How the fuck did they not see that just stripping that out would have made this a good movie? Anyway, it's hard it's to a do long when you have stars. Movie. It's hard to watch. Speaking yeah, of movies, is. I did see Dig, by the way, um, and found it completely uh, watchable and completely forgettable. 
The Dig, by the way, not Dig. The Dig, yes. Yeah, Dig being the... Yeah, sorry, the, the other Carrie Mulligan, Rafe Fiennes yep. movie, um, which is, you know, uh, made for grandma. Yeah, um, absolutely. And watchable. It's not, not totally watchable. Totally, totally. I mean, those two alone are fantastic. The, uh, the supporting group, Lily James, and uh, others are... It's a, it's a very... Um, it's a good movie. But put it it's this way, solid... Jay's Longhorn popped to my mind first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, so that's that's um, that's what we've been doing. I am ready to read. All right, all right, all right. At your recommendation, but I will report back. Yeah, we'll have to do a we'll have to do a book report uh, or a book club episode on on that. And in fact, yes, we will. All right. All right. So, uh, we'll talk songs. To you in a little bit. Well, hey, hold on. Oh yeah. Sorry. Songs. Busy we'll guy. Song but... on the... Yeah. Busy. Um, what would you like to put on the list of five trillion ten best songs of all time? Uh, so mine is gonna be, I think, a direct sort of a result of uh, the band we talked about today, The Strokes, and I'm going with the Libertines' "Time for Heroes." Oh wow! Nice, nice curveball. I was actually. Um, going more, uh, another direction, but also a curveball, uh, in honor of Mary Wilson, longtime Supremes singer and, uh, um, great talent. I am going to put a song not by Mary Wilson on, but a song that I am a hundred percent convinced was written for the Supremes, but recorded by Frida Payne and that's Band of Gold. Nice. Cool. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks. I'll talk to you later. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.